Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abismo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabismo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Welcome, everyone, to the New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS, Vipakul Society. My name is Yoshi Yonekawa from Rosalie Hospital, Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia. And I'm joined today by uh, three superstars, uh, Pete Campbell from KCI Institute in Portland. Pete, welcome back. Thanks, Yoshi. And Karen Jang-Miller from University of Massachusetts. Hey, Karen. Hi, Yoshi. And Preeti Rao from Retina and Vitreous of Texas in Houston. Hey, how's it going, Yosh? <laughs> all right. Thank you all for uh, coming back to uh, this uh, second part of our pediatric retina series. In part one, we covered uh, the new international classification system for ROP and a paper on late complications like RDs and vitreous hemorrhage in older patients with a history of prematurity. And today, we're discussing a pair of papers on giant retinal tears and GRTs span the entire gamut from pediatric to adult patients. So it's a very pertinent topic for all retina doctors. Uh, let's start with a paper summary from Preeti about prophylactic laser in stickler syndrome, something we get asked about all the time. Yeah, so um, we reviewed this Kana et al. paper, which was a retrospective comparative series of patients with Stickler syndrome um, from two tertiary referral centers in Chicago um, who are treated with one of two different types of laser um, prophylaxis for retinal detachment and compared to no laser treatment. Um, and so their methods were Stickler syndrome patients um, that were defined either by established clinical criteria or based on genetic testing. Um, and so they had two different types of prophylactic laser treatment, one which they described as extended vitreous base laser, which is um, 360 degree laser that was about half um, to one burn width apart, starting from the equator out to the aura. And this is to mimic the old cryotherapy laser um, that was um, reported previously um, years ago. And then there was a second type of laser, which was um, defined as non-protocol laser. And this is um, mainly laser around retinal pathology, like lattice or retinal breaks. If the pattern was less than one burn width apart or just didn't cover the equator to the aura, 360 degrees. So these, um, this type of pattern was performed by either outside physicians or by the treating authors. Um, and these Stickler's syndrome eyes, either both eyes were treated um, uh, with laser, or if they had a retinal detachment in one eye, the other eye was treated with laser prophylaxis. So overall, they had 230 eyes, um, 129, eyes 129 eyes were treated with his, this extended vitreous base laser, nine eyes were treated with this non-protocol -pro uh, laser, and 92 eyes had no treatment. So baseline characteristics, um, there's a median age of 10 years old, um, and the median age for treatment for laser was nine years old for the extended vitreous base. And in those that didn't have laser or the non-protocol laser, they're on average about 13 years older. So, um, so quite um, a significant difference. Um, the mean duration of follow-up was about four years in the no laser group and about six years for the extended vitreous base laser. 
And so their main outcomes were that um, the pr presence of a retinal detachment was significantly lower in their extended vitreous base group um, compared to non-protocol laser or no laser. Um, and specifically, the rate of retinal detachment in those with extended laser was about 3% compared to 100% of eyes that um, had this non-protocol laser. And, um, and, uh, and then lastly, in those that had no treatment, the rate of retinal detachment was about 70%, 70.6%. So because the no laser and the non-protocol laser um, risk of RD was pretty high, they end up pooling their no laser and non-protocol laser. They also noted um, the second point that the presence of retinal detachment increased uh, by age group. So the older you are, the higher the chance of having a retinal detachment. Um, and then they noticed that um, when they compared the extended vitreous base laser to no laser or non-protocol, they had lower rates of giant retinal tears and needing greater than two surgeries. So, um, so that was their overall kind of um, conclusions, but um, they did a subsequent analysis um, because it's such a high tertiary referral center, about 66 of their 100 uh, or 200 eyes um, actually had uh, retinal detachments at, per, at presentation, so about 20%. So when they took all those patients out, um, the actual rate of retinal detachment in the extended laser was about 2% compared to about 20% rate of retinal detachments in those that had non-prophylactic laser or no laser. So they also looked at visual acuity outcomes. So those that had an extended vitreous base laser had better final visual acuity compared to those that had no laser or this non-protocol laser. And they said that the predictors of visual acuity um, they found after adjusting for various factors was that extended vitreous base laser tend to have better visual acuity and those that had more number of surgeries had poorer final vision. But they didn't um, find an association between high myopia or, um, uh, and they weren't able to look at gene-specific testing in terms of their outcomes of their retinal detachment. Thanks for the nice summary, Preeti. Uh, Karen, what were your initial reactions when reading this paper? It's on a topic which is still pretty controversial and we get asked about this a lot. Thanks. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed reading this paper and I thought I had valuable insight into the role of extensive vitreous based laser for these for um, sticklers, um, people with sticklers. Um, and these eyes, if and when they detach, they can be really complex to fix, as everyone's alluded to. Often the poster highlights very sticky and the PVD might not even be able to uh, obtain. Um, GRTs are present, PVR can occur. Um, so as there's no consensus treatment, I think, especially with regard to laser prophylaxis, we do get a variety of treatment modalities, like the non-protocol laser, where you're only treating the pathology that pops up rather than doing this extensive laser. But I think this paper does a good job of showing that there's a good potential role for the extensive, laser, extensive vitreous base laser for the prophylactic prevention of retinal detachments in sticklers patients. Obviously a clinical trial evaluating the efficacy of this is the most ideal, but perhaps not doable given that this is a pretty rare condition. Um, currently there's an ongoing clinical trial that evaluates uh, prophylactic buckles and fellow eyes of patients who had previously detached. So it'd be interesting to see these results and see if um, in future studies, they would wanna extend this to extend the vitreous space laser. Um, or at least more retrospective reviews would be helpful in order to kind of create a consensus on what's the best way to treat these um, uh, patients with sticklers. Great. So we'll get into this paper more in a second. But before we do, Pete, um, can you take us through the second paper on GRTs? And as the listeners um, all know, the connection here is that patients with stickler syndrome often do present with GRTs. Uh, Pete? 
Yeah, thanks, Yoshi. So um, I, I feel like this topic comes up uh, quite frequently, and it's a hot topic in terms of how to manage giant retinal tears because they're, they're some of the harder uh, surgeries that we do as retinal specialists. So Sally Young was the first author. She was at Wilmer, and this was a group, uh, multi-center uh, group that put together a retrospective cohort study looking at worldwide management of giant retinal tears. Uh, so they ended up putting together 200 eyes. Um, all of them underwent vitrectomy, uh, some of whom the clinicians decided to put buckles on and some of whom they decided not to. Uh, over about a 12-year period, and they had at least six months of follow-up, follow they reported out to 12 months of follow-up. Uh, and again, this really was an international cohort, North America, South America, Europe, and, and Asia. Um, and uh, I'll just sort of cut to the cut to the chase. This is, topic has been looked at several times before, but what they found was that at six months in a non-randomized fashion, um, they had similar anatomic success rates. By 12 months, the success rates for vitrectomy alone in adults were slightly less than vitrectomy with buckle, although this did not reach statistical significance. Uh, obviously, this wasn't powered ahead of time, uh, but it trended towards uh, buckle being superior. That said, they didn't show a difference at one year. Um, and secondly, they looked separately at children. And in children, it was clear that uh, single surgery success rate was significantly higher if you included a buckle, which is interesting because a common talking point at all of our meetings is if you have giant retinal tear pathology, uh, there shouldn't be a role for a buckle. And so that's something we can certainly, certainly discuss. But I thought this was a nice large cohort uh, looking at this question. And it certainly suggests in pediatric retina that you know the answer of putting a buckle on is almost never the wrong answer, uh, and these, these data certainly suggest that. Uh, and and in, in adults, it, it complicates the question and complicates the arguments that buckles aren't necessary for GRTs. Thanks, Steve, for the nice summary. Karen, what are your initial reactions to this paper? That was a great summary, Pete. Um, and I think it is a really interesting paper that looks at like an old too common question to buckle or not to buckle um, in RD repair. Um, and so um, I think that uh, I, I, I tend to reach for buckles a little bit more. So um, this is uh, interesting, especially in a pediatric case where you say it's probably never wrong to put a buckle on. Um, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a tough question when the, the results are still a little bit muddled for these adult patients. Um, but I thought I, uh, that there was no, it was, in, was interesting was that when they stratified by lens status, there wasn't really a significant difference in terms of single surgery anatomic success. Um, and um, I think that this shows just how fundamentally different these GRT surgeries can be in comparison to like a primary single tear RD um, the, the paper talks about in, um, later on how basically depending on how big a GRT is, um, the GRT itself can serve as almost a relaxing retinectomy. So it relieves some of the traction that you'd be helping support with a buckle. Um, so perhaps you wouldn't need a buckle for those cases where you, if you put a buckle on, you'd want to have a gentle buckle. Um, what I thought would have been interesting to comment on might've been buckle height for some of these patients, um, perhaps quantifying the diaprismatic alpha induced um, just to see if there was a difference in terms of if you had a high buckle or a low buckle or what people did in general for putting a buckle on. Great. Thanks, Karen. Let's dive deeper into both of these papers in a bit, and we'll talk more about practical clinical pearls, but let's take a quick break first, and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to New Retina Radio Journal Club with BBS with a focus on pediatric retina. We're continuing our discussion on two papers, one about prophylactic laser in stickler syndrome and one about GRT surgery. Let's uh, talk about practical things first. Preeti, what do you do regarding pro uh, prophylactic laser for stickler syndrome kids? Do you, do you do it, first of all? And if you do, how do you do the laser and at what timing? Yeah, great question. And the answer is yes, laser, laser, laser. So I always uh, uh, prophylactically laser my stickler's eyes. Um, and I do it similar to how they described it in the paper. Um, I do about five to six rows of like one uh, burn with a part, half to one burn with a part starting from the clear to aura. I do also surround um, retinal, posterior retinal pathology, um, posterior lattice, um, any areas of like, you know, posterior breaks as well. Um, and I, the emphasis is that, you know, you don't want to heavy laser because you can also create breaks with laser. So I usually do kind of a lightish gray burn spot, um, just enough to kind of disrupt that RP retina interface and create that scar. Uh, Pete, what do you all do, uh, Casey? Yeah, um, Yoshi, I, I want to add one comment. Uh, I, I really love this paper and I really love the senior authors and they're really, really smart. I want to emphasize one thing though, which is that I think it's clear both from cryo and from extended vitreous-based laser that some sort of 360-degree uh, uh, ablation or scar uh, retinopexy works to reduce GRT incidence. What this paper doesn't show is that it, the massive amount of laser that they describe is necessary uh, compared to, say, a lesser amount of 360 laser at the aura. Uh, and even the motivation of cryo at the aura, which was described by the Cambridge group, um, is less than extended vitreous-based laser induces retinopexy uh, because they describe one single single cryo spot at the aura. So what I do is similar in my mind to what cryo does, which is I do uh, a minimal amount, uh, sort of three to four rows right at the aura, fairly contiguous and 360 degrees. I don't necessarily try and tackle all the posterior pathology, uh, one, because they didn't do that in the cryo data, uh, and because we know they're um, it's unclear whether that reduces future, you know, horseshoe tear type pathology. Um, and so I don't necessarily try and chase all of the lattice, although I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just, you know, this is pediatric retina. So we all sort of interpret the data the best way we can. So that's what I do is I do less than extended vitreous based laser, but I do recommend laser um, 360 degrees with the motivation of reducing GRTs. Karen, what's your approach? I agree with laser. So honestly, I haven't had a case of a stickler um, without an RD where I had to consider prophylactic laser for, but I feel like if I was faced with that situation, I would um, especially look at, um, I would at least do laser to a couple rows, probably two rows beyond whatever pathology, pathology is, so going posterior to that to make sure I cover as much as possible. Um, and then lots of laser, and I agree with um, light, light gray burns rather than a hot burn um, to avoid uh, creating a break um, in that area of the retina as well. Cool. So personally, uh, I do laser prophylaxis also, uh, but only for genetically confirmed kids with uh, cold 2A1 mutations or uh, kids who have a strong family history of RDs. So not everyone. And when I do laser, uh, I do do the extended base treatment, but not as extensively as this paper describes. Uh, I do it from the aura to the equator, light spots, but space pretty far apart. Um, and if the family history is really strong or if the other eye had a really bad detachment, I'll consider a prophylactic buckle also. And um, in terms of timing, we get asked this uh, all the time, like, you know, uh, child born with sticklers, you know, can you see the baby laser right away, do something. 
um, or should you wait? Personally, I wait until the kids are school age at least uh, because these kids can have severe airway issues and it makes intubation a pretty high risk procedure. And so, uh, especially when they're younger, as they get older, their airways kind of stabilize. So um, Preeti, uh, you're the uh, bad cop again. Uh, tell us about the limitations of this uh, paper. Oh man, Yoshi's is a great role. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, you know, I really respect the authors. They did a really nice job on creating a stepping stone for future trials. Um, I, I think it's a little bit hard to um, kind of say that the non-protocol laser, you know, is not as effective because the sample size is really small. There's only nine eyes and compared to, you know, the 120 some eyes that they did the extended vitreous base laser. The other thing is, it's just, it's careful to interpret the results because they pulled um, like 20% uh, of their population already had an existing retinal detachment. And so they use that to look at their outcomes. And so the majority of those eyes, like, you know, only, um, you know, about 64 to the 66 eyes were also in that control or a non-prophylactic laser group. So it's already kind of skewing the data a little bit. Um, so I would have liked to see um, uh, their results only by taking out those eyes. And then also to consider age match controls. So they demonstrated that, you know, as you get older, the risk of retinal detachment increases. So it would be nice to do age match controls. And then the last point you sort of also kind of touched on, Yoshi, is kind of this gene-based versus phenotypic um, uh, presentation of sticklers. Um, you know, it'd be, you know, there's very, um, you know, different uh, presentations of sticklers. So do, it would be nice to kind of look, put together a risk profile and how much systemic um, system, sim, symptoms of sticklers versus eye symptoms versus family history and whether grouping all those three and they're looking at the risk profile. And the last thing is that um, they pooled all patients, uh, all eyes, and um, whether they had a history of, uh, of a retinal detachment in one eye versus the other, it would be nice to do a subset analysis. For example, separating pe uh, patients that had bilateral laser versus those that had a retinal detachment in one eye and prophylactically lasered the other eye and kind of separated those out because maybe the risk is different in those that had an existing retinal detachment. Great points, Preeti. All right, Pete, so let's move on to the GRT paper that you nicely summarized. Um, for this paper, were the findings surprising to you? Does it change your clinical practice or did it kind of reinforce that you're doing an awesome job? And uh, what do you think were some limitations for this paper? So I wouldn't say I'm doing an awesome job. These are very humbling cases. Um, and I think the paper highlighted that because uh, we often quote patients with a primary detachment, you know, 90 plus percent single surgery success rate. And the findings, even among this expert group of surgeons, was less than that at six months and especially at one year. Um, the second point, which I didn't make earlier, is that because this was a non-randomized study, you know, there may be selection bias for which cases ended up with the buckle. They may have been more severe. And so if you were to randomize all comers, the differences may be even more pronounced than, than what sort of was suggested in adults and shown in, in kids. And so it it doesn't change my clinical practice because I tend to favor buckles in complex RDs in general, uh, including, including giant retinal tears. The only other comment I would make is, is you know, this is a pediatric retinal podcast. And so the, the answer is never wrong if you say, I'd like to try and buckle this alone first. And there were none of those cases described in this paper. And uh, in a limited giant retinal tear, you can get away just with a primary buckle. And I think that's important, important to remember. Yep, absolutely. Especially in a syndromic kids where vitrectomy may be 
with a very high risk procedure, if you can get away with a buckle alone, it makes the post-op course so much nicer too. Um, so it sounds like it's time for a, a new retina radio randomized clinical trial on this. Uh, so Karen, what, what do you do for GRTs in general? Uh, you know, the hot, top, hot questions that we always ask, you know, buckle, yes or no, gas versus oil, and direct PFO silicone oil exchange, or do you do uh, air fluid exchange first? Mm -hmm. uh, very nuanced question. Um, so for adults with GRTs, like I said before, I, I tend to reach for um, a buckle and a vitrectomy. Um, I don't really necessarily manage these as, as uh, primary buckles alone, um, even with a, a small GRT, three clock hours. Um, and so the buckle, um, I think, you know, a lot of people think it uh, can cause slippage of the retina. So I, I would just definitely recommend a very gentle buckle, not a, a very high buckle. Um, but I usually, depending on how it goes, I'll use either gas or oil. I try not to use oil as much as possible, um, and fundamentally because if I do a second surgery, but potentially the optic neuropathy that can be associated with it. Um, so I try to use gas as much as possible if I can. Um, and then um, I usually do a PFO to air to silicone oil exchange if I'm going to use oil, um, just because I feel like I get less slippage with that. The air buys me maybe a little bit more time because um, then you're just taking out the oil again if you do find that you have slippage and putting back PFO. So it's just a constant struggle, I feel like. Um, Preeti, what's the, what's the Texas way of fixing GRTs? Single surgery <laughs> success 100%. Yeah, well, um, it's it's difficult. It just depends on the configuration. I think um, for me, if it's about it's if the GRT is about three clock hours, a little bit more and less than six, I'll tend to put a buckle on. If it's more, it's essentially a retinectomy. So I don't feel like that's helpful. Um, and kids definitely, um, you know, do buckle bit. Um, and then typically what I do is I end up putting in gas um, similar to Karen, mainly as a as better tamponade effect. Um, and so those, those are kind of my little pearls. Okay, great. So Pete, to connect the two papers, uh, again, do you ever um, do or consider prophylactic laser in adults with GRTs? So a GRT in one eye and then prophylactic laser in the fellow eye. I assume you'll treat like, you know, tears and lattice and stuff, but 360 laser. Yeah. It's a great question, Yoshi, and um, it sort of falls in the same category as those kids who you might suspect have sticklers-like physiology, but don't necessarily have confirmed COL2A1 mutations. And uh, what I what I usually do is, in like in any area where we don't have clear evidence, I discuss with the patient. Um, and if it, GRT physiology does appear to be different, right? it, the vitreo retinal interface is different in those eyes. Um, and so I do discuss it with, with patients um, if they have they seem to have the tendency to produce giant retinal tears, and we have a treatment that can reduce that incidence. Um, I, I, I do discuss it, although um, that doesn't come up super often in patients who don't uh, have, have stickler's physiology or sort of known history. All right. Thanks, B. You all know what GRT stands for? Great retina talk. So this was <laughs> a fantastic discussion of, sorry about that, had to. Uh, this was a fantastic discussion of laser prophylaxis in uh, patients with Stickler syndrome and how to approach GRTs uh, in general, both kids and adults. So a huge thank you to Karen, Pete, and Preeti for your time and insights uh, for this double hitter. And uh, thanks to everyone listening uh, for tuning in. And this was part two of the Pediatric Retina Series with Mu Retina Radio in collaboration with Vip Buckle Society. 
And uh, speaking of which, our annual meeting for BBS, uh, the dates are set in April 2023 at the Bellagio in Vegas. And the theme uh, of the meeting was just decided upon, uh, which is Marvel versus DC, so superheroes. Uh, please keep an eye out for registration information, and we look forward to seeing you there. And also, uh, as always, there will be more from New Retina Radio coming up, so please stay tuned and uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts or via the, um, the iTube channel online. So thanks again, everyone. See you soon. Bye.